Hello there. You're very welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you're going to enjoy this extract from one of our all-time classic episodes with former president Mary Robinson. To hear the full hour-long interview and a little bit extra, and for more deep-dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores, along with our other series, Irishman in America, Irishman Behind Bars, Irishman Inside Basketball, and lots more, head over to Premium Irishman Abroad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. It only takes a minute, and for less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to everything, and you can walk around with a spring in your step knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through these very difficult times. Our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back in Ireland with all the mental health skills they will need to survive in life. And since the pandemic, they've seen a 400% jump in demand for their one-on-one and group services. With their phone line, their webinars and their new website, Jigsaw.ie, are making a tremendous difference back home, back across all communities. Why not take two minutes to visit them and see if maybe they can help you or maybe someone in your life or maybe through a donation you could help them. That's jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Jonathan Rigo! Mary Robinson, it is a pleasure to have you on Irishman Abroad. I thought the best place to start our conversation would be with what we're facing into now, what the whole world is talking about now. And I'm sure the world is interested in what you see it as and how you've advised people on facing into fear in the past. What's your position on this and how do you view it? And what is your advice to people that are extremely stressed out about coronavirus? Yeah, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist, obviously, but I've been following closely how it first of all affected uh, China, the Wuhan region, how they have dealt with it pretty effectively after not being upfront about it at the very beginning, which was a pity. Uh, It's now affecting, obviously, particularly Italy and Iran, but Every country is coming to terms with it. I think it will affect the United States much more than we've seen because they have not had proper preparations and proper testing for a large country. But I think the advice that we're all getting is the only advice that we uh, wash our hands, that we uh, avoid uh, shaking hands, etc. I I found it very difficult Mm -hmm. to avoid shaking hands or indeed hugging my close friends. I've broken that 
several times, even recently, because I just can't meet very good friends, not yeah. give them a hug. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> I take the risk. Yeah. But um, and I think we do have to be very careful and prudent. I'm in the age group that's most at risk. I'm conscious of that, as is my husband. So we have to bear that in mind. A number of the events that I had been invited to go and speak at have been cancelled uh, and so are put, most of them postponed. So I'm actually having more time, which is a good thing here in Ireland, in Dublin, and uh, thinking about other ways of communicating the message. I have a podcast myself, as you probably know, I called Mothers, Mothers of Invention. And I met with the team when I was in London recently for a Women of the World event, a WOW event. Uh, which was great fun. I also earlier met with the podcast team and we've got new support for another series, which we will start. And that I think I'll be able to give more time to and take even more seriously with Maeve Higgins uh, because we want to continue to communicate our, our message and humour, as you probably know, helps a lot. Mm, it does. I mean, language is at the centre of all of this. And you mentioned there that you're part of the group that are most at risk. And one of the things I pointed out this morning on my Twitter feed was the language that's being used uh, over and over again is wash your hands, sanitize your hands. And of course, if you've got an underlying health problem or are immunocompromised, you're most at risk. So take extra care. And I felt that that was dehumanizing, isolatory and othering those people as if they can't even hear this. Those people don't matter. And how that felt to have a wife who's immunocompromised, a brother who's immunocompromised and, you know, several, several elderly parents. And just the, the nature of that brought you to mind as well, because, as you say, the you're part of that group and there comes a time in your life when you feel suddenly part of this other group that seemed to be less of a priority. When did you first start to feel that? And when did that language start to bug you? Uh, it's a hard one to answer because I have to give you um, a humorous answer, which isn't what you're expecting. <laughs> um, my, my concern uh, quite some years ago now was when I was asked by Nelson Mandela to join the group of elders. And I didn't feel I was an elder at all, at all at that stage. <laughs> um, and at the same time, it was a great honor to be asked to join. Mm. It was in May 2007. We were launched in July, uh, 18th of July 2007 on his 89th birthday. He was there and it was, uh, you know, a very moving event. And I do feel a great commitment. I'm now chair of the elders, in fact. So gradually I became accustomed to considering myself an elder. Mm. And my husband, Nick, who has a really good sense of humor, often says, well, Mary, you're the elder. I'm only elderly. You know, so <laughs> yeah. we've been having this. But I do feel much more significantly for those who feel more isolated, scared, on the wrong side of this, uh, don't know what to do quite. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are very anxious about it. And it reminds me in a funny way of just how many people are climate anxious, climate anxiety, and most of those are very young. Mm. So it's a curious thing. The coronavirus is, is making scared those of us who are at the age where we know we're much more prone to, uh, you know, open to possibly becoming infected and it's more serious for us. The climate anxiety of the young is, am I going to have a future? 
it's mm. you know it's it's interesting you, you know we it's a good place to be, begin the kind of deeper discussion mary i don't know it seems weird to call no, you, call me call mary. you no, mary. That, t- that takes years <laughs> off me to be honest <laughs> okay great i also feel like calling you mary robinson because that's how you well, were always <laughs> referred to I, actually most people in ireland call me mary right you know taxi drivers anybody i don't take taxis as much and i take the bus everybody calls me mary so Okay. Okay. Great. Well, let's go back to the the young Mary, the really young Mary. Your your father described you as an avid tree climber and something of a tomboy in the sense that you know you were involved in the boys' activities and didn't see a reason why you shouldn't be. And he said that nothing was impossible to you. Do you remember having a sense of that that it didn't feel like there was anything that was really out of your reach? To an extent, growing up with those four brothers, two older and two younger, certainly taught me about, uh, you know, gender issues, equality, using my elbows. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also remember, you know, when we would go for a a walk, which became a sort of run with a football um, in Enniscrone on the beach, that as we were running along and I knew my brothers were wholly engaged in the game, I was thinking, looking out to sea and thinking about the future. And I would listen to my parents. I remember listening in particular to my father when he would come back from a long call out into the countryside to a very poor home. There'd be a midwife there for a delivery of a baby, but he'd go because he was anxious that the uh, mother hadn't looked too well when he'd visited her earlier and he wanted to be there. And then he'd come back and say to my mother, who was also a doctor, I heard that question again. It annoys me so much. And the question was, Dr., is it a boy or a child? Is it a boy or wow. a child? Wow. Yeah, over and over again. And you see, that's what you see in developing countries, the you know, the use of abortion to get rid of the female fetus uh, over and over again in China, but in India, very prevalent, other parts of Asia, in some parts of Africa, and the boy-child still being much more dominant in so many societies. So I would listen to these conversations between my parents as my brothers simply teased each other and ate up (laughs) at the table. And I was very aware somehow of being, of thinking a great deal about things that I think children don't think about quite so much. And then I was very fortunate in my grandfather. Uh, He was a retired solicitor, retired early through ill health himself. And he was well enough off to uh, be able to live at home. My grandmother had died earlier and he would buy books. He was a great reader. And that was something that influenced me. But he didn't know how to talk to a child. And I I loved hearing him talk. I was 10, 11, 12 at the time. And I would sit with him in his room, which was called the smoke room, ironically. Um, And uh, it was this kind of study. And he would talk about the cases he used to take for tenants against landlords and the black and tan days, how bad it was, etc. And I was absolutely fascinated by this. I mean, it, it really it makes a lot of sense as listeners and as people that have grown up with you in our lives as to how your horizon was as wide as it was and how your understanding of justice, the world, equality and women their place in it came to be. And one aspect of you that I always kind of marveled at was your ability to deal with the public eye. And when I went back and saw that this was the upbringing and that the Burke family uh, 
were an important family in the locale of Balana. Again, that made sense, that in a sense your family were a family in the public eye, and that there were standards to be upheld by being in that position. And I stumbled across one story in particular about you attending a, a movie in a local cinema that <laughs> might have been a little bit inappropriate for you. Can you maybe tell the listeners about this experience and what exactly yes, it must have meant to you at the time yeah. at a very young age? Yes, I remember that. There were two cinemas in Balna, and I had carefully told my parents we were going to some anodyne film in one cinema, <laughs> and we went to a horror movie in the other cinema, and somehow my mother found out. And it was really very embarrassing and an awful moment for me with my two younger brothers when there was an announcement made, would Dr. Burke's children please leave the cinema? Mid, mid-reel, like the, mid-reel, the movie stopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, that was possible in those days. And I had to shamefully take my children out, and this was not not a good moment at all. But uh, despite what you call the public thing, I was actually very shy in one way um, as a young girl growing up. And when I went to boarding school in Mount Anvil, I actually forced myself to debate um, because there was a debating Mm. club there often completely lost um, my uh, ability to continue because my mind had gone blank through sheer shyness. Right, and so, so pure stage fright. Pure stage fright. And another thing was I was thinking of my options towards the end of my six years in the boarding school. And, you know, I was I, my family were deeply religious. We'd said the rosary as a family together in the evenings. I was religious at school. We'd mass every morning. And... I I was looking at the possible options. And even though my parents had told me over and over again that I had the same opportunities as my brothers, Irish society wasn't saying that to me. I remember at the age of 15 going to the Yates Summer School in the desperate hope that I might become a poet because that would open up a channel. And it didn't didn't work. I went twice, actually, I think when I was 15 and 16. I I, I went to the first ever Yates Summer School. We, we, we slept in the board, board, boys' boarding school, boys school there on horsehair mattresses, I remember, and told each other ghost stories, frightened the wits out of each other. But anyway, my, my conclusion was that I could follow two aunts of mine who had really done things, and they were both nuns. One was a great aunt, Mother Aquinas, and she had become the mother provincial of the Jesus and Mary nuns in Gartner Abbey, quite close to us in Cross Malina in County Mayo. And she was a wonderful woman with a great sense of humor. And I used to enjoy her company and challenge her and take her on. We, we, we had good fun together. Mm. And the other nun was a, a sister of my father's who was a Sacred Heart nun in India, who actually was a graduate of Trinity College and then entered the Sacred Heart nun, in, interestingly, in England, and then went to India and spent most of her life with initially rich girls in Bangalore and in Bombay, as it was then, Mumbai now. And then they changed to working with very poor girls. And she would send letters to my father asking for slabs of palm oil, palm oil of soap in, in its, blue, its green packaging. Yeah. And my father would send her a, a small box of these and get back excited letters about how the girls were able to wash, what oh a difference God. it had made. And I was very impressed by this. I thought, well, she's making a difference. And, you know, my great aunt Aquinas is making a difference. And I decided um, in my final year, I offered myself to become a nun in the, uh, to the Reverend Mother, who was shrewd enough to sort of say, well, Mary, 
that's great and we'd love to have you as a postulant, but uh, why don't you go away for a year and come back to us then if you still want to? And my parents were so proud of me that they sent me to Paris for a year. And of course, that, that changed everything. <laughs> that changed that changed everything, to and say, to to say to the very all. least. Yeah, to <laughs> say the very least, that changed everything. And it's a, it's a year of your life that, you know, that none that spoke to you and gave you that gap year, as uh, British people would refer to it, changed your life forever and completely at that fork in the road took you somewhere else and your parents given the opportunity to go to Paris obviously opens your mind and you um, stop practicing there. Do you remember that yes. decision, that moment, that time and the guilt that I'm sure came with it? It, it was very gradual. I, when you say stop practicing, it's a curious thing. I became very critical of the Catholic Church, but not of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I still try to live up to that, believe it or not, and mm. I fail most days as any of us who try will fail, because it's the highest moral code that I can think of. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am very committed to that. But I was more and more critical. I had been critical anyway of the fact that only my brothers could be altar boys. I had to wear this awful scarf in church. And then the, the role of women was so limited, as I said. That became something that I opened up to more, if you like, in Paris, because I was free to. I was free to think in a way that I hadn't been to the same extent in Ireland. And How do you mean free to think in that were you, I, I'm picturing young Mary Robinson having coffees in <laughs> Parisian cafes and discussing these things in a way that wouldn't absolutely. have been okay. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and being taught by wonderful teachers, going to the Jeux de Paume and other uh, museums and learning about the value placed on culture and art in the Paris of the time, but also that it involved regions that, uh, mm. you know, all over France, you had this sense of culture, include, including food culture. And I mean, I remember the night I arrived being utterly shocked in the Sacred Heart convent that I was staying in, the Foyer du Sacré-Cœur, it was called. I was staying there with 17 other girls, 16 French and one Italian, all of whom spoke very colloquial uh, <laughs> French, needless to say. And that was where I really learned my French. But on the first evening, they were out and I was alone and I was given soup and I had two glasses. One was obviously a water glass and the other was a wine glass. And the nun came, a sister came in and I, she was very familiar to me because she was wearing the same habit as in Dublin. And she poured me a glass of red wine and I was absolutely shocked. I was a pioneer. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> and I, I went into the chapel and prayed that night because it was so different and I couldn't understand anybody because I had the honours French in my leaving, but it was Morin's French grammar, you know, yeah. learned back to front. And so it was it was very destabilising, let's put it that way. But it was a wonderful year in Paris of learning about the philosophers, going to uh, listen to, um, what's that wonderful singer? I'm just having an elder moment. She was called the Sparrow. Uh, I heard... Edith uh, PF. Edith PF, yes. I heard her live in the Odeon in Paris, and it was just a wonderful moment. And I did have very good friends, both French friends and um, a Canadian girl, uh, Cherry Richards, who, who remained a very close friend. And Cherry would take me on the back of her motorbike, and we would scoot around Paris. 
<laughs> and she also led me astray to go to the cinema in the morning and skip class from time to time, which was something I wasn't disposed to do, but was led astray. And it was a wonderful time. It was also an innocent time for me. I didn't have any boyfriends. Um, but um, apart from that, it was, as you say, a fork in the road that... Yeah. Um, that changed me, and then I decided to study law. Yeah, and before before we get to it, I mean, what you've painted there is really a pretty amazing picture that would be worthy of any biopic of your life, whizzing around Paris on the back of a moped, discovering your true self and seeing EDPF Singh live and in person. And I, I did wonder about, you know, what you thought of that person versus the person that you would come to be and how, you know, in the same way we all look back on our teenage selves and sometimes face Pam and sometimes envy that person and the the idealism and kind of innocence of it. What do you think when you look back on that, Mary Robinson? I, I, I remember evolving hugely during that year. There's no doubt about it. I also remember a great sorrow. My grandfather died. And uh, my parents said, you know, I'm afraid, you know, you can't come home for the funeral. You'll be coming home anyway uh, in a couple of months. And we just couldn't afford, you know, mm. an airfare to come home to a funeral. And I remember we use the word now self-isolating. I actually self-isolated for several days and wouldn't come down to meals, wouldn't go to, you know, just literally was devastated. Yeah. With this sheer, I think I was, I was lonely and I couldn't take that I wouldn't see my grandfather again, you know, yeah. and uh, so that, that was that was a particular memory. And then my father came over at the end of my year to spend a week with me. And we did all the things that I couldn't have afforded to do, like going to restaurants and things and going down to Versailles and walking along. And he was a wonderful person to be with because he had a sense of wonder. His favorite word when he was in Paris was gosh, you know, yeah. <laughs> gosh. And but he had that capacity to wonder and to be open to everything. And so I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that, but I didn't tell him that I had changed dramatically. It was afterwards when I got back and confessed to them, I didn't want to go to mass anymore because I didn't like church, that we had a row and it was, it was difficult for a year. And then I went to Trinity to study law. I know you've made three attempts to get to that studying law in Trinity, <laughs> but I, I think a, a lot of us in the same way as we're obsessed with the origin stories of our uh, comic book superheroes. The beginnings of all of this, Mary, truly fascinating to me. And I, I guess it's because, you know, you constructed in a large sense the Ireland that I knew and the, you know, how I would only hear from others of how conservative things were and how, you know, my own father was an Irishman abroad and my mother did uh, had a similar path to you in getting to travel young and then coming home and seeing the contrast of technicolor world and the black and white monochrome idea of what diversity and nationality could be when you return to Ireland. The return back that precipitated you going to study law in Trinity. Was that as jarring as it was when you returned from Harvard, having seen the assassination of JFK and the sense that young people weren't silenced in America? Were those returns that uh, just to correct, was, it was it was Robert Kennedy, not um, JFK. Sorry. It was um, it was uh, yeah, um, and before that, Martin Luther King in April. Yes, we, we, we can come back to that if you like. Because the two years that made a huge impact on me were Paris 
and then Harvard. Yeah. No doubt about that. And they were both complete turning points. But yeah, both, but the both, year that I spent, yeah. you know, in Mayo before I went to, uh, it was it was a tough year because my parents were, you know, determined that I would be a good Catholic girl still and still go to mass. And eventually, I just sublimated, you know, my doubts and my fears and my concerns and just got into the habit of going back to mass on Sundays um, because that was what was required and kept them and, happy and kept them happy. Yeah. And um, I did a scholarship and got an entrance scholarship to Trinity. And I was delighted about that. I always wanted, if possible, um, you know, to be independent and save my family money if I could. You know, my parents would have sent me to Trinity anyway, because my two elder brothers were there studying medicine. There was a family tradition. As I mentioned, my aunt who became a nun had been in Trinity. My uncle, uh, my father's oldest brother, had been in Trinity. My father himself went to Edinburgh for his medicine. I'm not quite sure why, but he always, you know, enjoyed, except for the cold in the in the intense winter in, yeah. in Edinburgh, but uh, it, it it was a it was a tough year. And uh, just describe it a little bit, because look, that is something, Mary, that I think all of our listeners can relate to. It's a universal that doesn't matter if this is 2020 or the uh, 70s. The clash of generation is something that we even started this podcast with. The yes. uh, presenting new ideas to people who are older than you and believe they know best and love you dearly and care for you and only want you to be safe. It's one of the great problems that we'll all face in our lives. Y you faced it too. And at a time in Ireland when your parents were concerned for you in a kind of metaphysical sense that they were worried. Yeah, they, they couldn't they couldn't conceive of the fact that I wouldn't, you know, be a, a believer in the church in the way that they were. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the that was the difference. And um, it, 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 it was quite it was tough. Um, as I said, I immersed myself in study in order to get the exam as a way of feeling that I was making some progress in my life during this year when I was basically staying with my parents in the west of Ireland. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was tough. Yeah. So when the first days of Trinity begin, I, I always felt that y your first few weeks in the big smoke in university up there, it's kind of overwhelming. It's nearly too much to take. And there's also, again, the loneliness, the, the sense that that we all have of the kind of imposter complex. Did you suffer with that at all? Not so much, I think, because I'd had the year away in Paris and then I'd had a year at home studying and doing the entrance exam, uh, getting a, an entrance scholarship. So I felt older than mm. some of the students and some of my contemporaries. And, you know, I'd been around. I also decided to do honours French as the subject that you had to take with, with law, with legal science. And that meant... You know, that was kind of an opportunity to, to continue with the French in a way that I was uh, very happy with. I was clearly delighted to be in Dublin and with my two older brothers and my brother Henry, who was the year behind me, but had caught up with me because of my year in Paris and my year at home. So uh, there were four of us in Trinity and my mother had found a flat in Westland Row or sorry, bought a house under a receivership. Uh, 21 Westland Row. And that was the house where Oscar Wilde was born. Wow. And uh, so, you know, we kind of stayed there in, you know, an enjoyable thing where we had the flat upstairs and the bottom was let 
never very successfully, but at least brought some income from time to time. <laughs> um, and we, we used to be outrageous when, uh, you know, I often ask people to guess the nationality um, that was most likely to want to knock on the door and ask about Oscar Wilde. It was the Japanese at the time. Really? Because they loved his plays. And it, it's understandable in, the, in Japanese culture it's very hierarchical, very snobbish in many mm. ways. Mm. And they, they just loved his plays and would see the plaque. And it had been put up by McLeamore in, uh, I think, Edwards and McLeamore. Um, so you had, a, you had a kind of a tourism responsibility to Ireland well, at that it, time, it, not too. Not very often, really. Well, but we were very proud of the fact that it was Oscar Wilde's house. It's now part of Trinity itself, well, which so is good. What would you even say to those people when they came to the door with oh, their questions? Oh, uh, you know, Oscar's busy and he, he just can't come down <laughs> and all sorts of outrageous things. You know, we, we weren't very responsible. And I used to blame my brothers because they were keen on horse racing, especially my two older brothers, the doctor, the medical students. And uh, there was a bookies at the top of the road called Harry Barry's. And I pointed out to my brothers that while we were losing furniture and things... There it is. That's just the beginning. To hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irishman Abroad episodes and shows, join us on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events. And for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe... Through a donation, you can help them.